Hello, everyone. We are going to get started now. I know we're a couple minutes behind, so thank you for your patience. And welcome to what is the future of US housing. Now, my name is Ali Wolf. I'm the chief economist with Zonda. If you're not familiar with Zonda, we are a housing data and consultancy firm. We track the entire building life cycle. So our main focus is what's going on in the new home market. Now, I am so pleased today to be joined by our three panelists. We have Todd Anderson with Oakwood Homes. We have Charlie Chupp with Fading West and Michael Harper with Icon. Now, they're going to all do a self-introduction towards the about halfway through this presentation as we talk about what is going on in the market. Now, the format. I'm going to start with about 10 to 15 minutes of the high level of the affordability backdrop. Why are we here talking about the affordability challenge in the housing market? And then I think more importantly, we're with these gentlemen that are actually doing something about the problem that I'm going to lay out. So as we dive in, I just want to acknowledge what has changed and evolved just over the past year. If you track out what's happened with mortgage rates, we went from a period where interest rates were historically low in the twos, then at the beginning of last year we were in the threes, we got up to sevens, and even just last week we were close to being over 7%. Now with everything with SVB, we've seen that that's come down, but right now 30-year fixed rate mortgage averaging over 6%. What that means for a consumer is if they were shopping for a home at the beginning of last year, they've seen a 30 to 60% change in that monthly payment when you layer in higher mortgage rates and higher home prices. Put a different way, if someone was searching for a home at the beginning of last year and they were looking for a home in the 700,000s, that was at a 3% interest rate, they were maxed out. With interest rates where they are today, now instead of a $700,000 home, they have to look at a $500,000 home. If someone was looking at 500, now they're looking at 350. We have gone through this historic affordability shock. Whereas you track it out, the key difference, we have twofold. We've had this record level of home price appreciation and this record rise in mortgage rates. Think about the latter point. Mortgage rates do not impact all buyers equally. If you are someone buying off of your income, and you don't have other forms of wealth, you don't have the bank of mom and dad, you can't sell other assets. Entry-level buyers, most notably, have been feeling the brunt of the impact. That's different to what we see for luxury buyers, or move-up buyers, someone trying to trade up their home, or even relocation buyers. So as we look at that, I wanna start with the buyers that can continue to purchase, that are fueling some of this level of activity. Now, we attribute part of that to what we're calling equities and equity. Ignore what happened to the stock market over the past few days. Also ignore what happened over the past year. Not everyone was day trading. We have people that have longer term investments. S&P 500, over five years, up 40%. Then you look at average home equity. This is showing you how much home equity has gone up over the past year. Orange is the highest. You're seeing that in Florida and you're seeing it in Hawaii. But then if you track out the dark other states are along the smile states, you can see Texas the Southeast, Arizona. But think, those numbers are actually in line with what we're seeing in a place like California. That's very rare. You don't normally see that those dollar amounts are similar. It's showing you some of the outperformance across the country. Now, as you look at equity, equity impacts people that already own their home. They've seen their wealth go up, at least on paper. 
But equity also becomes really important when you're looking at migration, people that are moving from one market to another. We are sitting here in the number one state for the most migration for two years in a row, according to U-Haul. Specifically being here in Austin, we're in the number one metro across the U.S. for three years in a row where more people have moved in than moved out. We know that a lot of people, if we just think about Austin, have moved here from higher cost areas. This not only impacts Texas, but we're seeing this in the southeast, we're seeing this in the mountain region, as you know, and people are able to tap their equity, bring that value, that, those home prices that they're able to cash out on, and convert into being a homeowner in these other markets. So we see that with migration from international, then you can look at international migration. If you look at the top areas where Asian buyers are inquiring, you can see again, it's your gateway cities. If you roll all of this up, what we find is a near record level of all cash purchases to end last year. 35% of all homes that are sold are going to cash buyers. And when you look at it and you ask yourself, well, how is that possible? One key figure is not only equities and equity, but how many people own their home free and clear. Census data says 42% of people that own a home do not have a mortgage on that. And that's concentrated more in those individuals, 55 plus. So as we track this out, what we're saying is going into the pandemic, we had this pool of buyers, record low interest rates, we got this larger pool. Where we are today, this pool is dwindling. Still plenty of people that can afford to buy a home, but that discussion leaves me a little bit cold. What about everyone else? What we know is this market is not easy to navigate for most shoppers. If you look at San Antonio, Houston, Cincinnati, Cleveland, there's 20 to 35% of all new homes built that are being built under 300,000. But if you look at your more traditionally affordable markets, look about halfway through this table. Austin, Charlotte, Orlando, Phoenix, Vegas, Minneapolis, Denver. You have either no product that's coming on the market under 300,000 or maybe about 5% of the overall market. We know that this is a core issue, especially when you layer in the level of home price growth. Take a look at Miami, 18% home price appreciation compared to last year. This is after consecutive years of home price growth. Tampa, Denver, Salt Lake, Orlando, you're seeing eight, nine, 10% home price growth. So as we look at the issue, I think there's a key question that says, okay, we know that incomes are up, but our incomes are up enough, especially in a high inflation environment, where home prices in some markets are up 55% compared to where they were in 2019. What we know is the people that were able to purchase homes over the past few years had some unique characteristics about them, especially if you looked at the existing home market. They had great credit scores. They had good debt to income ratios. Notably, they had high down payments. You don't have to have a 20% down payment to be able to purchase a home, but in a really competitive market, those were the individuals that won out. But then if you look at what we're seeing with consumers, think about millennials. People are so enthusiastic about this group wanting to become homeowners. And there was this myth for a while that they never wanted to own homes, but Every year for the past six years, we at Zonda have done a millennial survey, and consistently, we've had 95% plus of millennials that say they absolutely want to be, become a homeowner if they haven't already done so already. Because they understand, 
What are the benefits of homeownership? Not only is it stability, not only is it wealth building, it's generational wealth building. And it becomes important when you're talking about high levels of inflation and rising mortgage rates, wouldn't it be nice to lock in the largest share of your monthly budget? And when we talk to consumers that are renting, and we say, well, why are you renting? The number one reason right now is I'm waiting for prices to drop. There's a hope for a market correction because people are saying, I wish I would have bought in 2019, 2015, 2010, whatever it was, but maybe I wasn't in the position to do so. Now, as you track out the market, there's a very clear difference between the new and the existing home space. Existing homeowners don't want to lower their price because maybe they have this sentimental reason behind. My children raised here. My Zestimate says my home is worth this. My neighbor sold for that, so I don't want to drop my price. You know who doesn't have that mentality? Builders. They're in the business of building and selling homes. And what we've seen is there has been price discovery that's already happening on the ground. Now, price discovery can happen in a couple different ways. One way that we're seeing builders try to address affordability is by intentionally paying points to buy down the mortgage rate. So if you look at headline rates, we're talking six and a quarter, maybe six and a half. What we know, 62% of builders are buying down the mortgage rate to the mid fours, to the low fives. They're able to bring down, not to the 3%, but they're able to adjust for that affordability. More notably, 51% of builders right now have lowered their prices between five and 20%. Now there's a reason I think this is important, because we knew the number one reason renters were saying that they were renting is because they're waiting for prices to come down. If you think about how the housing market evolved, we had FOMO, fear of missing out, that drove activity until last year. And then we had what we're calling FOBAT, fear of buying at the top. The housing market was frozen last year because consumers were saying, do I wanna buy now? Am I making a mistake? Is the market going to correct? And as we've seen builders offer these incentives and these price cuts, we've seen a 14% month-over-month increase in home sales. Consumers are absolutely responding. How you get over fear of buying at the top is saying, well, I'm gonna buy this house, it's down 10% from its peak, and the builder's getting me to a mortgage rate at 5%. Now, as we track this, though, I think my question is, how sustainable of a solution is that? Housing demand slowed because home prices got too high. Builders adjusted. How long are they going to adjust? How long do they feel that they have to find the market? Ultimately, what we're trying to look for is what kind of longer-term viability is out there. What can be done for entry-level buyers, for local buyers, for lower-income buyers that are not just waiting for a builder to offer an incentive. They're trying to find something on the market that actually hits the price point that their income supports. So how do we get there? Well, the problem is there's a lot of factors and a lot of factors are moving in the wrong direction to try to account for affordability. Land prices, material costs, regulatory fees, labor costs, all of these have shot up during the pandemic. Some of them, as our panelists will talk about, have leveled off a little bit, but not seeing a massive compression in the cost to build a home. Then you think about, well, what can a builder do? Well, they can chase signs, the size of the home, they can change the finishes, they can change the options, they can change the product type. 
If you talk to consumers, overwhelmingly, they want a single-family detached home. They don't want to have shared walls. The issue is, to build a single-family detached home, that's often going to be a higher base price. Not always, but shifting to more attached product can help with the costs. And if you look at the areas that have seen such massive growth in home prices, San Antonio, Phoenix, Austin, Houston, over 90% of all of the homes that are being built are single-family detached. Then we say to builders, okay, well, you can do some more attached product, but what else? What else can be done to lower costs and lower sales pricing? Well, you can pare back features so the home that you're going is not fully decked out, but as we talk to builders, a lot of them are saying, well, we'll still do a nine-foot ceiling because it's hard to retroactively put in an eight-foot ceiling, but we want to cut out some of the things that someone can invest in over time as they see their wealth go up. 37% of builders saying they're not doing anything because they're saying we're selling to. The individuals we talked about at the beginning of this presentation, they have wealth. They want an aspirational home. They don't need to have a smaller home or a pared back home. 38% of builders, though, focusing on square footage. When we look at how square footage has evolved for a home, going into the pandemic, homes were trending down in size. We were already talking about housing affordability challenges then. But then people were working from home and working out from home and socializing at home and consumers were demanding a larger home. We saw home size trend up. Most recent data, that's absolutely reverse course. We're seeing home size trend down again. And in fact, at our company at Zonda, we sell floor plans to custom builders, for example. What we're finding is a notable downshift in, in what's being sold. Right now, the average home size that we're selling is 2,000 square feet. That's not us or builders forcing that on a consumer. That's someone saying, I'm going to either remodel my home or build a custom home, and this is the square footage that I think makes sense for the price that I'm looking to hit. Now, we can track what builders can do in terms of size, in terms of density, but then we also have to think about what kind of alternative building processes. Is it going to be container homes, mobile homes, modular homes, manufactured, 3D printing? And that's, again, why we have these panelists, because they're busy working on these categories to say, what can we do differently? And I think the most important thing and why this matters is we talked about the benefits of homeownership, the stability, the wealth building, how this impacts multiple generations, locking in the payment to not have an affordability shock when inflation or interest rates rise. But what we also know right now in the US is the largest share of the largest living generations, the millennials, are at the key age to be buying homes when they have kids, when they get married, when they decide to purchase a home at just about the wrong time for overall affordability. We know from our survey there's the largest share in the past six years of millennials that want to buy in the next one to three years, but they don't know how they're going to get there. But we know if it's done right, we know that there are a lot of prospective buyers that are out there. So with the backdrop set, we have to move on to our panel to talk about what can actually be done. And so we're going to start with um, Todd from Oakwood Homes. Todd, what I want you to do is talk to us just in about a minute about your company, when you guys started, sure. and how you're in the business to try to address this. Yeah. Now, as you go through that, I'm going to show some slides, too, of what your company's working on. Great. Yeah, this is our 33rd year in business at Oakwood Homes, and we've always tried to have a focus on affordable housing, but I think in the last five years, we had lost our way, just like a lot of builders. It's easier, and uh, you can be less disciplined building a $800,000 home than you can in building a $300,000 home. 
We started another division of the company called On Two Homes uh, about a year ago. We've got about 12 of those built uh, that are prototypes where we're learning how to build homes inside of a manufacturing facility because five years ago, uh, we sold the company to Clayton Homes, who is owned by Berkshire Hathaway. And they own uh, nine single family builders around the country, uh, one of which is in Austin here. But uh, they've been a wonderful partner to help us get better in terms of efficiencies because they build 50,000 homes a year and uh, high quality, so thank you. Awesome. Charlie, can you give an introduction, please? Yes, I'm, I'm Charlie Chupp. Wow, that's really loud. Are y'all awake now? <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm Charlie Chupp. I started a company back in 2015 called Fading West, um, not knowing it was really going to take off, but our mission was to create attainable, high-quality, architecturally interesting housing in the Rocky Mountains. That's where we are. Um, and at that time, I was, my favorite album was from a band called Switchfoot, and um, Fading West was the album I was listening to, so I was like, I'll just call this company uh, Fading West. So that's how we got our name. It's kind of odd, but what we've seen is this massive demand in the Rockies where you have these resort communities where no one who works in a community can live in that community. And so you've got this massive diversification uh, of society into these different communities, and it's, it's really unhealthy. So what my background is actually manufacturing. It's not construction or development. So I kind of got into this in 2015, looking at how do you bring efficiencies of manufacturing, and specifically Toyota production systems or lean, um, how do you bring that into this system and eliminate the waste? Because construction is just a very waste-heavy industry. So that's who we are. Awesome. And Michael. Hey, everybody. Um, uh, I work at Icon. Uh, we are a construction technology company. Uh, we were actually founded five years ago uh, as of yesterday at South by Southwest. So this is a, a huge week uh, every year for us. Um, and we were, uh, I'm, I'm one of the original uh, team members, um, been with the company since 2018. And we were really founded and propelled into existence um, because if you think about it, we really have not changed the way that we've been building homes um, for hundreds of years. If you boil it down, uh, it's still sticks and bricks for the most part. And we think, um, we have conviction that in order to really effectively address uh, housing supply, what everybody knows as the global housing crisis, we really have to uh, change the way that we think about home building. And um, virtually every other industry on earth uh, has gained massive uh, efficiencies from uh, digitization, uh, utilizing software, robotics, automations, um, and construction is, is lagging behind and, uh, uh, on that front. And, and we, we think um, that 3D printing, uh, specifically for now, uh, is going to be the paradigm shift that this industry uh, needs to begin to adopt um, in order to uh, build homes of, of quality, uh, affordability, and at the rate uh, that we really need to. Yeah, and I think the affordability point is where I want to go next because as I talk to each of you, we can go around the country and we can find homes that have been intentionally built for affordability, but because there's such a lack of supply, those prices are changing rapidly. So an example is I was just in San Antonio at the beginning of this year and we found a 400 square foot home that was built single family detached intentionally for lower priced local buyers that wanted to just own a home even though it wasn't large or anything fancy. When they started selling that home, it was selling for 100,000. Now it's selling for over 200,000. 
And so there's the problem where you are intentionally trying to solve for the issue, but there's demand and market forces that get in the way. So I want, and I'm gonna, Todd, I'm gonna start with you to just go through high level price points that you guys are operating in, how you're trying to change that, and the square footages that you're exploring. Yeah, and uh, what we look at as a uh, exec team is what are those price bands that we need to be in to be on the left side of a bell curve? If you were to take uh, prices or sizes, uh, you'd see that normalized uh, statistical bell curve. We're trying to focus all of our efforts right now on the left side of the bell curve and really serve the first time buyer. Um, and that's a huge shift for us as a company because you feel good about building million dollar homes. They you know, do something for your ego, but uh, we're really in this time in our company history and our uh, country's history, seeing that the future in the next 10 years for Oakwood is gonna be on that first time buyer because people aren't gonna trade a 3% mortgage for a 6 or 7% mortgage, no matter how much they like that home. So that's kind of our focus. So in Colorado, being on the left-hand side, what price point does that look like? The median sale price in Denver is about 650 right now. And so um, our new division on two, uh, we are trying to bring product in in the 300s, in the low 300s. So about half of what the median price was because we think there's a uh, never ending market. We'll create a market if we were to be able to do that consistently. Does that put square footage at 1,000, 1,200? Yeah, about 1,000 up to about 1,700 is kind of our sweet spot uh, where we feel like we can win and have really uh, happy customers. But as you're doing that, I think what a lot of people get kind of hung up on is the home size versus how the home is built and how it lives. And if it's right sized, mm -hmm. then it still can actually feel like a 2,000 or 2,200 square foot home if the design is right. Are you working closely with architects? How are you trying to figure out the best way to make that live while not feeling like a 1,200 square foot home? Yeah, and we have a fantastic design team. Our lead designer has been with the company almost the entire 33 years. And uh, you know, has done hundreds and hundreds of plans and just does a fantastic job thinking about how do we look at this, whether it's pod product, high density, um, attached or whatever, and you know, really can uh, squeeze every square foot to be usable. Um, unlike, you know, when you're building a 5,000 square foot home, you're just throwing in a lot of spaces that may or may not be used. And uh, living in a larger home myself, I can say I use about two thirds of my home, you know, because it isn't that way. And I bought a 1,700 square foot second home recently, and it's more than enough for our family of six. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. All right, Charlie, how about you? What about where prices were, where are they now, and what are you doing with square footage? Yeah, so again, we're in the Rocky Mountains. So the square footage prices in all of these resort communities are just astronomical. I, I was in Vail the other day, and we, we partner with different communities and not-for-profits to create um, their communities because you've got these, these different groups trying to get into development that have never done development. So because in Breckenridge, if you're familiar with Breckenridge, you can't buy land and create affordable housing in the, even in the 300 thousand dollar range and the workforce there they're having the town is having to become the developer 
And because we have a development division, a construction division, and then we also do off-site manufacturing, modular construction, um, we're trying to bring that package to those communities. And so uh, Vail, they were just saying the average home price in Vail now is $2.4 million, right? And so you, you can imagine there's not a teacher, a police officer, a firefighter, or anyone that could live anywhere within 30 miles of that town. So what we do is we work with like Habitat. They get the land and we come in and help them develop it with high density product. And those houses will be in the, in the three to $400,000 range. Okay, yeah. so you really can hit something that's more reasonable, especially if you're comparing it to 2.4 million. Yes, well you have, to have, you have to have partnerships and you have to have some kind of um, partnerships with either communities or not-for-profits. Okay, and then Michael, I know you guys are a little bit unique, but how are you viewing home prices and square footage? Yeah, absolutely. So we've uh, we're we're you know still a young company, um, five years old, uh, but we have built homes uh, you know across the full spectrum of of the residential market. Every everything from social and affordable housing in partnership with with nonprofits, um, all the way up to ultra luxury. Um, and you know we can uh, we can succeed and and deliver a. a High-performing product at kind of that across that full spectrum. Um, we to date we've built uh, about uh, I think we're approaching 50 homes, uh, and then we're in the middle of uh, building another 120 plus. Uh, I believe is is the latest. Um, homes are selling. Uh, we are not always the the partner that lists the home for sale. We don't always control the sales process, but. Um, kind of our, our scaled up development uh, that we're doing right now with Lennar, the homes are gonna be targeted uh, in the fours. Um, we don't know totally where that's gonna shake out yet. The market will kind of dictate that, but, um, and I'm not gonna uh, kind of get ahead of myself, but we're announcing uh, a pretty substantial initiative um, for affordable housing at uh, lower price points than the fours. Uh, come to that event on Wednesday at the Long Center. Um, uh, it should be fun. Um, so really kind of a wide swath, but everything on square footage from 350 square foot studio homes all the way up to 5,000 square foot plus um, larger, larger footprint homes. Okay. And let's stay with you for the next question, which is, in your opinion, why is housing so expensive in the US? Yeah, uh, what a question, right? Um, uh, so much to unpack, uh, but um, I think if I had to boil it down to kind of one component right now, it's, it's just supply. Um, uh, we cannot build homes fast enough. Um, we just can't. Um, uh, and so... So, hold on, why not? I, I think, I think uh, again, pack, but, um, did my mic just go out? Okay, there we go. Uh, I think a lot of it is the labor supply. Um, there's a, uh, we, we track the National Association of Home Builders and their kind of data releases. Um, and the last one that I read was uh, in order to address the housing shortage uh, that exists today, um, la their last year's data was five million. And I think because of all the, the slowdown in starts, that shortage in the amount of homes that we need uh, is, a, is, is about six and a half million. And in order to address uh, that shortage, we would need to immediately add another two million uh, construction workers um, just in the residential housing field. That's not all of construction, that is just in the residential field. And um, the fact of the matter is uh, um, 
uh, folks coming out of college and or high school just are not joining the construction trades at that rate. Um, I, I grew up doing construction. Um, uh, my whole life has, has been around construction, and so um, I think you can make a hell of a career in the construction trades, but um, the realities are what they are, and um, I think that's just one, one of the components that's, that's driving up costs, is we just can't build them fast enough. Well, and the reality is, too, if you think to the COVID recession, if you think back to the great financial crisis, it doesn't feel like a stable job in the way that you would hope because there is some volatility where if demand slows and mm -hmm. starts slow and then maybe your job's at risk and then you're, yep. you're struggling more where we've seen during at least the great financial crisis, there was this idea of retooling, retrading, leaving the industry because you just don't want to go through something as dramatic and as profound as what we did. Um, for the housing shortage, what I will say is the estimates as you look across economists is 6.5 is the highest estimate um, out there. Uh, other economists say maybe it's 1 million or 2 million or 3 million undersupplied. But I think as you look at the price point, I think if you were saying, can we get homes under 200,000? It's probably 10 million. You know, you could build as many as you could and people would continue to show up. We just can't get there. So we're going to knock that off the list, Charlie, so you can't say the supply of housing. We'll assume that's encompassed in your response, but why do you think housing is so expensive in the U.S.? Well, two, two big things, and I'll first ask, is there anybody here from the government? <laughs> okay, okay, so not to blame everyone in, with government, but there, I think there's two, two things, um, zoning and codes. So zoning, if you look at what defines the cost of a home, it starts with what type of a product you can build in a certain area. And the United States loves single-family, big, detached lots, and that's great, except for going forward, people need affordability. And th there has not been the same attention paid to rezoning to match the, the, the market needs as, as I believe needs to happen. In our little community in Colorado, there's, you know, the highest density zoning is completely gone now. Um, and they refute, you know, people don't want to rezone, they don't want higher densities. And so you get this, um, the definition of the cost of the product is determined the moment you walk in um, to your zoning meeting. So no matter how good you can do construction, if you are required to have a one acre lot with 50 foot setbacks and six trees and do an architectural review committee, you're just never going to get to affordability. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is codes and regulation. Uh, National Association of Home Builders just estimated that about $100,000 of cost to a house is defined by codes and regulation. And this is not to say that, th that we want to build exactly. poor product. We are passionate about the people who live in our ho homes, and we, we want them to be safe and secure and love the product. Um, at the same time, there's this continual creep of codes and regulations. And so in Colorado right now, there, um, I think maybe even nationwide is, we're looking at sprinkling single family homes. Um, do you know how many people died in Colorado last year in, fire home, in, in fires in a home? 13. Do you know how many people died in traffic accidents? About 800. So about 60 times more people died in traffic accidents. If we approached traffic and automotive industry the same way we do housing, you'd have a 35 mile an hour national speed limit. Everyone would be very safe and lose their minds in the process. So you've got this super diverse um, trending of overkill with the demand uh, for affordable housing and that's a problem.
All right, so Todd, you can't say zoning codes or supply, but adding to the list, why is housing so expensive? Wow, uh, <laughs> tough act to follow for sure. Um, I think, you know, we all are part of this whole frog in the kettle a little bit where, um, you know, as someone who's an operator, I think I've built over 20,000 homes in my career and I've heard every excuse from every supplier or uh, contractor because that's been part of my job and it, you think you've heard the last and final good excuse of why this person needs a price increase or that person and next thing you know another one comes out of left. Does anyone know what PET is? That's the goo that holds fiberglass insulation together. Apparently there was a shortage last year, you know. But again, it's one of these emails that comes across the purchasing group's desk that says, okay, we need a 5% increase or a 10% increase. So it's a little bit like into uh, my oldest daughter got married last summer and she wanted this Colorado ranch wedding, you know, where you get this venue that just happens to be a working ranch that is beautiful with mountain scenery and everything, but then you gotta order linens and napkins and lighting and sound and DJ and it's death by a thousand cuts and I feel like George Banks and Father of the Bride, you know, where, okay, here it is. So it's a little bit like that in the housing thing. Some of the cost parts are commoditized like lumber that went from $350 per thousand board foot in 2018 all the way up to uh, $1,800. So figure that out as far as a percentage. That lumber pack, which is the biggest single item in a home, uh, just went out of control. And uh, now it went back down last summer to 900. And we thought, gosh, things are going so well last spring. Let's buy a whole shizload of lumber is what we say in Utah in our division there, okay? And at 900, it seemed like a good deal. Well, now it's 450. So I have $26 million of lumber that I bought that I've got to burn through. That's no longer market rate, uh, but it is what it is, right? And so you work through that whole thing. So uh, the national commoditized pricing, the contractors that can't seem to find good things. I was having a discussion the other day with a 15-year-old plumber relationship, and I said, Bobby, what's going on? I got your bids, and they're $1,500 higher than what I expected. He goes, you know when I used to bid stuff for you, it was because I could get a kid who didn't know anything to come out and work for 12 bucks an hour. Now I've got to pay him 25 for the kid who doesn't know anything. And if he's not making 30 within 90 days, he's walking off and going to work for a competitor because now he knows something. After 90 days, he's an expert plumber, right? And that's just the reality of it. In our industry, you know, I see a few people in here with this nice frosted hair like I have. Uh, it's called the silver tsunami. For every 10 workers that are leaving the trades, there's only one that's going into it. And so that's a continuing problem. And so the way we've addressed that is we've set up uh, a group called uh, Careers in Construction to teach shop class again in high schools. And we have about 1,900 kids up and down the front range that are taking our programs with the uh, Home Building Institute and are going into the trades because it's a noble and wonderful trade to be in where you don't need to go 100,000 in debt with college uh, to get a job at Starbucks or whatever you're doing with your French literature degree. Um, so 
I think it's a wonderful deal, but again, it's a long, long pull to try to get caught up because Denver alone is about 100,000 units short right now. So I think that's a big part of it is this frog in the kettle. We've just gotten sloppy because of 3% interest rates. This is actually a great opportunity for our industry to be able to have to face this and say, yeah, we're gonna have to fix this or go out of business. Yeah. You know? And so we're choosing to fix it. At least the three of us. Yeah. <laughs> Try it. So as we're looking at the, you were talking about the silver tsunami, that's one thing that we saw really interesting during the pandemic was this idea of a lot of the trades, especially that were owned by boomers, were saying, I don't want to go through another housing crisis like 2008. I want to sell and get out now. So we saw some proactive retiring to just try to avoid any kind of economic headaches and turmoil that might happen, mm -hmm. even though at least from pandemic, we know that the market grew instead of contracting, but some of those decisions were already made. Yeah. So I think in high level, you heard not enough supply, zoning and codes, uh, labor force. We talked about materials, uncertainty in building, which causes, I don't think you guys talked that much about it, but stop-go development, which is going to prevent, from Michael's point, getting a lot more homes built because you're always, wait, pedal on? No, break, wait, I don't know, trying to figure out where the market goes. Um, we didn't talk about land, so obviously land prices are a, a, a big component to that. But I think one important component, too, that I think is often forgotten is how long it's now taking to get homes built from the production builder point of view. And then I'm curious how, from your three point of view, it's probably different than what we see. So for context, going into the pandemic, it took on average about six months to get a home built. During the worst of times in the pandemic, it took 14 months, 15 months. It took a long time to get those homes built. What we're hearing now is for production builders, they're saying, hey, was six, got to 14 plus, now it's about nine. So we're hearing it's moving in the right direction. It's not back to pre-pandemic. But I wonder from your point of view, and, and Michael, let's go to you, because now everyone thinks, okay, it takes nine months to get a home built. How long does it take Icon to get a home built? Great, yeah, great question. Um, depends on the home is, is, my, is my first part of, of the answer. But um, the way that we're addressing this is by getting really efficient, simplifying the build process um, with less unique materials, having to bring less unique trades uh, onto a job site, um, and utilizing robotics to build the core structure of the home uh, just significantly faster. Like uh, for the wall system of a home, what we're doing in a couple weeks uh, typically takes a production home builder um, months. Um, and so uh, we're just set up to go uh, faster. Um, yeah, and uh, we're just set up to go faster. And so we've built, uh, you know, we're, if we can go 24 hours a day, um, we want to do that. Um, uh, a house that we just finished um, uh, along the Gulf Coast, uh, we built a hurricane-resilient, hurricane-proof home with the state of Texas in 90 days, start to finish, um, from permit to, to CO. Um, 90 days, tip, his, 10 years ago, was the standard for production builders in the field. Uh, cycle times were 90 days. And so um, right now, that's our target, is to uh, help the industry get back to a 90, 120-day cycle time. I think like comfortably today, we can get to 120 days, and we want to get to that 90 days as just as our, as our default next kind of target, and then go faster. Um, if we can leverage 
we're, we're focused on robotics and automations in the, in the, in the construction process. And we think uh, in a couple years, we'll be able to go much faster than even 90 days. Um, yeah. All right, Charlie. So, so Fading West is really um, kind of our, our methodology is to combine the development with the con site construction with off-site construction. So we're trying to parallel those and sequence those so that we're building the, the units in our production facility at the same time we're doing site work. So, you know, different, different locations, you know, from permitting to the time the foundation is there can take, you know, a month or two takes about 10 days to go through our production facility. So we can build a house in our factory in about 10 days. Once it's set on the foundation, then it takes a, um, a single family home, takes about 30 days. Uh, we just finished a five-plex, so five different homes attached. Um, we did that in a little under 60 days. So we can compress that time. We can do things in parallel, and that's a huge part of kind of the speed and the cost savings and the efficiencies that we're trying to bring to the construction process. Yeah, and so Todd, I think this is a good part, part to bring in. You can answer the question directly, but also talk about having Clayton being your parent company and how, to the idea of efficiencies, how important is that? And I'll, I'll put up a picture too. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we were acquired by Clayton um, five years ago, and what a wonderful partner. They're just really, really great people. And this is one of their facilities. As you can see, it uh, is very clean, uh, very little waste. When they get done building a home, there's basically one trash can full of waste. They use everything. And uh, so that's been really great to learn, but because they're owned by Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's idea on owning a company is just capitalize them and help them do what they do, and uh, they kind of have a hands-off approach. And we've been kind of pulling and saying, hey, you guys do this 50,000 times a year. There's stuff we could learn from you, because most of their plants build uh, nine homes per day. And um, we think there's a lot of things that we can learn. So we've done a bunch of tours there. They're doing some stuff offline, like building the entire master bathroom offline. And then when it comes time for that assembly to go down the line, it just gets plopped in with tile surround, granite tops, I mean, really high quality specifications. So um, we have uh, really exciting uh, initiatives in the works right now. They have a initiative called HiBar that is kind of a cycle time reduction initiative that they're doing with all of the builders that they own. And so we're uh, playing around right now with an 85 day schedule, um, which again, you know, as was said, it used to be that we could do the whole home in about 90 days. Uh, now it's, you know, taking six months or nine months or whatever. And it's kind of the guys out in the field and the gals out in the field building the homes are like, you know, it is what it is. I'll try as hard as I can, but don't hold me accountable to a schedule because of this, that, and the other thing. Last year, it was doors, windows, garage doors. Something was falling off the truck, you know? Yeah. And so um, we're getting back to we've got to be disciplined to do this. On our manufactured homes, uh, when we bring those out and set the uh, two floors from that point to finish is about three and a half weeks. And so I think that's a huge advantage to be able to turn that. So to wrap up the cost discussion, thumbs up, down, or flat, are prices to build a new home going to be more expensive, less expensive, or flat over the next 12 to 18 months? I'm hoping they are flat. I, I we think got that... one that listened to, to rules. <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Flat. Okay, <laughs> what do you yeah. have? Flat, down, up? I'm going to go ahead. 
I'm going up. He's up, yeah. I'm going down. Oh. Yeah. Consensus, there you go. And the reason is, uh, largely, I know we have at least one designer in the house, because I talked to her before we started. Any other designers in the house? A few of you. You know, I love you, but <laughs> this is a season where we need to greatly simplify and standardize. For example, our company had 750 different window SKUs, okay? It's kind of hard to purchase windows when you have that many moving parts, right? Our new product series that we're replacing has 13, okay? And so that allows us to actually ask for a discount from what we had been paying because we're making life easier on our different suppliers and our contractors that are building our homes. And that's across the board with every initiative. It's all about that. And so that's why I believe it will go down for us, not in general. Okay, because you saw in real time how hard it is to forecast because we had down, up, and flat. Um, Michael, let's go to you because I cut you off when you were saying about, about how you're viewing construction costs. You know, our uh, financial team, um, like, like you just kind of hinted at, it, one day it's like market look, is looking like it, things are, are going to start coming down. Um, I think I, I'm trying to be optimistic and, and, and uh, a little pragmatic and just hoping that they remain relatively flat. Um, I'm just not confident enough that uh, commodities are going to keep coming down. I think if they do go down, I think it's, it's over the next 12, 18 months, it's probably because builders are, may trim their margins a little bit. Um, to uh, just get through their inventory. Um, so, but not all builders are gonna do that, so I'm, I'm in the middle, flat. Okay, all right, so the next question, which is very interesting, because you guys are in order of acceptance. When you talk about modular, manufactured, 3D printing of housing, for years, when we would talk about it, there was just a discussion of, well, the consumer's reluctant to it, the government's reluctant to it, there's just not an acceptance of it. And as I talked to each of you guys on the prep call, you all had a very different opinion from reluctance to celebrated. So I'm gonna have you, Todd, because I know where you are on it, that uh, there are traditional hurdles just from perception that I know you guys have seen. Can you, so can you talk about that? Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, things have changed in the last 12 months, haven't they? And uh, we had a real live thing. Uh, we're doing some other deals with the uh, new on two homes where we're not building model homes. We're actually selling them out of a retail space in a Target strip mall on, you know, near the interstate in Denver. And 3D goggles with virtual reality and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, as part of the sales process, you go through the qualifying and all that. And you want to get down to a one-of-a-kind home on a one-of-a-kind home site and close, right? That's what we do. And uh, we had a couple people uh, just in the last month when we asked them, well, which of the models do you like? And they said, I just want a home. Oh. <laughs> I just want a home. And so I think that's the reality of where we're at right now. And that's kind of the heartbeat of what's you know, keeping us up at night and getting us up in the morning to do this great task is, yeah, I just want a home. Well, I just want to provide a home. Yeah. You know? So there were perception issues. Now it's just yeah. so much value in owning a home. I think so, yeah. All right, Charlie? You know, it's, it's been interesting because, you know, in the Rockies where we are, there's the same kind of desperation for housing, right? And 
when people come to our factory, you know, we're, our factory is actually in the Rockies, and so when they come and they see what we're doing and they understand how we're bringing you know, value engineering and standardization and simplification, but still really high quality finishes and great structural design. And you know, most people are like, yeah, this is the way it should be done. My house that's getting rained on and snowed on with half of its you know, roof still undone doesn't seem to make sense. And uh, you know, my background is manufacturing, so I'm like, yes, it doesn't make sense. We should be building houses like we build Camrys right? Um, we should be thinking about the market and how do you build a great product for the specific home buyer's needs and, and getting really good at that and repeating it and um, getting people into homes. So uh, we've seen uh, a great acceptance of, of our design and our product. And, and I'll say before I go to you, Michael, that tone from both of you is, is very different because even just, I remember we wrote a white, a white paper in 2019 and there was still so much reluctance and resistance to a changing. We've always built homes this way. What do you mean you're doing it in a factory? That doesn't make sense. That's evolving, evolving so much that Michael, I, I think you use the word, in some cases celebrated what you're doing. So can you talk about, I want you to talk about perception, but then transfer that into, when we showed the pictures, and I'll pull them back up, what's unique about Icon is there really aren't design limitations. So can you talk about perception and then how design plays into that? Sure, and, and do you want me to talk mostly about perception by consumers or, Either or. regulatory bodies? Everyone. Okay. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so far we, we've, we've been, I think, really fortunate and people are really excited uh, about um, what you can do with, with 3D printing. Um, we have had over a million homes requested uh, through our website, which is actually very difficult to find where to request a home on our website. Um, uh, we just need to build them faster. Like we, all of our efforts are on scaling up um, the manufacturing of our equipment to go build these homes as fast as we possibly can because um, we, I, I can't tell you how many messages I've gotten where it's when can you get to our town? When can you get to you know, our state? Um, we need what you're doing, whether it's because of hurricane resiliency, just kind of as a, as a feature that we bring, but um, perception is, uh, um, from a consumer base, really excited. Yes, there are a couple skeptics, um, or, or not, not necessarily skeptics, but people have questions about, um, uh, about how it's built, is this, is this real? Um, and once we, you know, after a couple conversations, it very quickly kind of translates into, okay, how soon can you get here? Um, uh, real quickly, kind of a similar experience uh, with uh, building departments, um, uh, authorities of jurisdiction. Uh, again, it's their job to be conservative, especially with new technologies, um, uh, protecting uh, the citizens in their community, liability, et cetera. And so, it, Initial conversations, there's a lot of questions. Uh, how the heck are you 3D printing a house? Um, I'll tell you when we showed up to the city of Austin in 2018 and we said, we'd like a building, uh, we'd like a building permit uh, to 3D print a house. They definitely looked at us like we were a little crazy, but um, now, after, again, after a couple conversations, um, we put a lot of effort into the design uh, building science um, and walk them through how, how how we build a 3D printed house, it translates into excitement uh, about bringing innovation into uh, your communities to, to uh, provide innovative housing, um, high quality housing to uh, 
community members. So herein lies the issue. So what we've identified is I just want a home. You guys have so many people on your website. Give me a home, build a home. But who can build homes right now will be the larger production builders who are actually really building to scale right now, but they're building on that nine-month cycle versus what you guys were talking about, three, four months, whatever you can do. I know that all of you have made large investments and your intention is to really move the needle and the intention is to improve scale, but Charlie, I want to start with you. With those investments, how many homes are you building now and, and how many will that be in two years? How quickly can, you, can that evolve and change and you can actually put numbers and, and homes on the ground that move the needle? Yes, I mean, the, the whole different business model of off-site construction is there's so much upfront cost in your facility. As opposed to a GC, they might have a truck and a clipboard and a bunch of subs. You know, the bigger companies obviously have much more, but in the Rockies, you know, we're, we're, we're competing with GCs that don't really have any fixed cost. There's a massive investment in, these, in this factory. Ours is about 110,000 square feet, and it's probably on the smaller side compared to a lot of the Claytons um, and, and other big big modular builders. But we could probably put out between four and 500 homes a year. And again, you know, we'll be the, one of the bigger factories in Colorado and we won't even touch or scratch the surface of the demand. Um, it's, it's so overwhelming, so. Yeah. All right, and then Todd, we already talked about Oakwood's overall levels, but what about, or sorry, um, Clayton's, what about Oakwood? Yeah, we're uh, in the planning and design process of a new facility. Right now, our current uh, plant that we're building the onto homes in is just a truss and panel plant. We can do about two homes per week in there. Uh, we're building a $70 million plant that's going to be largely solar powered, and uh, it will have capacity to do four homes per day or about 1,000 per year. Um, so that's super exciting, and that's just for our Colorado uh, operation there. And we think this product's going to be additive to our site-built homes. All right, so we have four minutes left. We're gonna do two questions, and I'm gonna work this way down and then that way back. Um, one of the questions that, Michael, I wanna to pass to you is, do you think we'll see a substantial shift in new homes and how new homes are built by 2030? God, I hope so. Um, uh, I think we have to. I think, I think we truly have to. Um, and I think what these two gentlemen are doing with what Icon is doing and, and other folks in the construction scale 3D printing space are doing with, with um, uh, kind of deploying robotics to the field and building on site. What I, what I think is, is coming next is an integration of factory built with on site. Um, I think we provide a lot, of, a lot of benefits, especially on the design, especially on the design side by, by uh, building the homes on site. We can deliver um, a really unique community where kind of every home uh, can look different. If we combine that with uh, off-site, maybe factory-built uh, components, whether it's bathroom pods, kitchen pods, fixtures, um, I think that's where, uh, I think that's where we uh, envision this going is just a combination of, um, of uh, a bunch of different uh, technological, technological advancements in speed of delivery. Um, that's where I see this going. Okay, so Charlie, let's say, so Michael started with hope and then went into some reasons why he believes the answer is yes, we'll have substantially different ways that we're building homes by 2030. 
I guess for you, given the infrastructure that's in place, given the amount of factories, given what you know about regulation, financing costs, higher interest rates right now, do you think it is very likely that is going to be a shift in how homes are built by 2030? Yes, I, I do, because one is the demand is there. So people have to have to find a place to live. So you have to address the market in some way. We all have to come together and figure out how to do that. And and the other macro trend is that we, we talked earlier about the, the lack of skilled trades coming into the production. And so eventually you are not going to be, it's going to be harder and harder to find the plumber and the electrician and the framer. And when you bring that into a production facility, you can train a competent person on a repeatable process much easier. And, you know, there's, there are people out there smarter than me. McKinsey is estimating that between two and three trillion dollars of site work is going to move to um, off-site construction, whether it's 3D printing or panelized construction or components or modular is what we do. So, yes, I, I think it has to happen. All right. Todd, you're not going to answer that question because we are at time. So my question for you is, if you could wave a magic wand, what is one thing you would change to help address the housing affordability crisis in the U.S.? I think better uh, public-private partnerships would be a, a huge win to where uh, I think the government has the answers, but for some reason it feels like they don't want to uh, give up whatever that little control is that they have, and uh, so it's frustrating working with government most of the time, and it shouldn't be. All right, Charlie, do you have a, a magic wand request? Oh, yes, I do. I think that... If, we, if you could change anything, if there could be a na nationwide building code and call it 10 different zones based on climate or geographic conditions that are automatically approved without modification would be extraordinary. Then you could have investment into product types that were applicable and safe for different environments. And you'd start seeing R&D. You'd start seeing um, more infrastructure being built to be able to, to serve larger markets. I mean, uh, I looked up, uh, Mercedes-Benz spends over $6 billion a year in R&D. And I bet you there hadn't been a billion dollars spent in R&D and construction in the last 10 years. And so if you could, if you could create a market that was automatically uh, approved and you could build to that specific um, code, I think you'd change the market. All right. So I'm going to finish with the three key things that we heard today. I think as we think about the supply issue, a lot of times it's, oh, builder greed. There's a lot of kind of finger pointing and frustration with the market. But as we heard, it's a combination of zoning, materials, land, regulation, all of these different factors that are making it hard. What that's resulting in, point number two, is that we're undersupplied between one and almost seven million homes in the U.S. But point three is there's a lot of time and money and investment that's going into how do we get homes in the 300,000s, in the 400,000s? How do we get to a point that housing gets there? But as you heard, scale is going to be the biggest issue, but know that that's the push. We're trying to, to be able to continue to enable homeownership as the American dream. So Todd, Charlie, Michael. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. Enjoy the rest of South by Southwest. Thank you so much.